Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com Welcome. You're listening to Casually Baked, the podcast. Home base for the can of curious. Thanks for tuning in. It's we had a hard time together, together. Yes, it's a hard time. We had a hard time together. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, your host and cannabis lifestyle guide. If someone you love is warming up to cannabis, encourage them to subscribe to Casually Baked the Podcast. I offer a soft place to land for anyone interested in a relaxed wellness approach to cannabis consumption in the modern cannabis culture. Speaking of landing, I'm recently back from my trip home to Texas and am currently packing up my studio where I've recorded over 160 episodes of this podcast. I'll admit juggling two businesses and a weekly podcast while making a big change like this it's a little chaotic. But after talking to today's guest, I'm attempting to make my move back to the wine and weed country without getting buried by the overwhelm. Serial entrepreneur Joseph Ori is known for his ability to stay cool in the chaos. Joe is a trial lawyer who started his own law practice straight out of law school, and he's been named an Illinois super lawyer for the past seven years. Joe is also a cannabis advocate and co-founder and general counsel of Six Labs, a Michigan-based cannabis company, and he's also a father of four. Joe explains his struggles finding relief for a debilitating back injury playing collegiate sports, and he schools us on the business of cannabis in both Michigan and Illinois. And because the entrepreneurial challenges in cannabis are dialed to an 11, Joe shares his advice for commanding chaos in this nascent industry. But before we dive in, a word from our sponsor, MJ Relief, the muscle rub PhD formulated for what aches and pains you. And this week, we'll hear Kate's story of relief. Hi, Joanna. I had to call and let you know how much I love your MJ Relief. I have this really crazy back pain that cropped up and nothing else was helping. I tried other CBD. I tried Arnica. I tried all sorts of other things. And and I know there's a little bit of Arnica in here, but whatever you did to make this CBD magical mixture, it is 
crazy effective. My pain went away in my back. I'm now using it on my knees and ankles and I love it. No joke. It's the best. If you're feeling Kate's pain and want some muscle and joint relief of your own, head over to mjskinrelief.com. That's mjskinrelief.com. And for those of you who are already fans of MJ Relief, thank you very much. Please send a video or voice memo and let me share your story of relief on the podcast. And follow at MJ Skin Relief if you're a social butterfly. The Sustainability Roll-Up is presented by OCB Rolling Papers. In perfect harmony with natural, sustainable practices, it's always been the OCB signature to provide the highest quality, responsibly sourced, and sustainably crafted rolling papers. As I transition from the city back to the country, I daydream about what cities of the future could look like. I've been curiously exploring this idea and technologies to create smart cities for a couple of years now, and I'm constantly amazed at nature's willingness to provide us the tools necessary to create everything we want and need in a sustainable fashion. I worked for a real estate developer for a few years in Texas, and I officed from a high-rise under construction during the majority of that time. Though our project was recognized for its green building practices, the amount of waste created by the construction industry is staggering. Globally, the construction industry utilizes a selected few building materials, namely steel and concrete, which puts high pressure on our natural resources. We cannot build our future cities with the same resources as the existing ones. That said, one of nature's rising stars in the sustainable building movement is mycelium, the biomaterial that forms the root systems of fungi. It turns out mycelium is part of the solution to carbon-negative buildings. It is naturally fire-retardant and has better insulation properties than most standard insulation. Mycelium grows in soil or on substrates such as wood in long, thread-like shoots called hyphae. These can form into hard masses called sclerotia. This is the vegetative resting food storage body of fungi, whereas the visible part, such as a mushroom, is the fruit. Mycelium can feed on low-grade agricultural waste, sequestering the carbon stored in the biomass as it grows. Mycelium-bound composite materials are a new class of sustainable and affordable biocomposites that have been recently introduced into packaging, fashion, and architecture as an alternative to traditional synthetic materials. Mycelium-bound composite materials are developed based on fungal growth of at least one species of commercially cultivated edible mushrooms on different organic and inorganic substances. Typically, these substrates are sourced from food and agricultural waste and byproducts that are crushed and compacted into a porous block. During the development and growth of the fungus onto the substrate, it develops a mycelium that consists of those thread-like hyphae forming a tight, interconnected network acting as a binder around the substrate material. These mycelium-bound composites have numerous advantages over other traditional synthetic composites, namely lower cost, lower density, 
and lower energy consumption. They've also shown lower environmental impact and CO2 footprint compared to bioplastics or wood composites. Mycelium-bound materials have only been recently introduced in the construction industry. Therefore, the information regarding their applications is extremely limited. They have been used in a variety of applications, ranging from non-structural to semi-structural, replacing traditional plastic films and sheets, synthetic foams and plastics, paneling, furniture, and decking, thus paving the way for alternative, environmentally sustainable construction materials. By embracing nature solutions, we can retire the current linear economy, where materials are mined, manufactured, used, and thrown away. The new model activates a circular economy, where resources are kept in use and their value is retained. We can now design and construct buildings from natural and fully compostable materials that can be reused or recycled and that can be adapted, reconstructed, and deconstructed. We're in the early stages, my friend, but a regenerative construction industry that's one with nature is on the rise, just like my OCB rolling papers. All OCB papers are plant to puff and made in a facility that's powered by 100% green energy. And all OCB papers are vegan, GMO-free, chlorine-free, and dye-free. You'll love OCB even more because they make no-tear, even-burning rolling papers with natural, always-stick acacia gum grown in African fields that OCB has been reforesting for decades. Of course, you must be 21 and older to buy OCB rolling papers and to follow the natural wonders of OCB on social, at OCB underscore USA. And if you're following along, you know that I'm getting pretty good at hand rolling my joints. And if you're a grown-up joint rolling novice, I invite you to jump in and learn the craft alongside me. Catch the Roll With Me video series live streaming on the Casually Baked YouTube channel with replays on the WeedTube and IGTV. If you haven't bought your rolling supplies yet, there's still time. Visit ocbusa.com backslash baked to get four booklets of OCB and a rolling tray for only $4.99. This bundle is worth 20 bucks and is around for a limited time. But the rolling skills and street cred we'll earn together, my friend, makes this bundle priceless. As for you OGs who can roll a joint with your eyes closed, I challenge you to sample the entire line of OCB products and let me know your favorite. Ask for OCB wherever you buy your papers. You'll find links to the OCB special offer as well as an interest form for joining me on an episode of Roll With Me in the podcast 193 show notes at casuallybaked.com. Joe and I cover a lot of ground in this chat, from cannabis and professional sports to personal use to going all in on yourself and your ideas to developing resilience in life and business. If you're an entrepreneur reaching burnout mode and looking for a little inspiration, this podcast is for you, but it's also for anyone seeking relief from debilitating injuries. Joe's story will give you hope. So smoke them if you got them and settle in for a double dose of Joe. It's time to get casually baked. 
I got the bottle of wine, the high dollar kind. I got the West Coast smoke, but I better just I'm really excited to have Joe Ori, the general counsel and founder of Six Labs based in Michigan, on the podcast with me today. I don't know anything about the Michigan cannabis scene. So Joe's going to talk to us um, about that and about his relationship with cannabis and how he got to where he is and how he has become known as the commander of chaos. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Joe. Uh, just one clarification in case my partners listen to this. I'm a co-founder, so I'm, I'm one of I'm one of six founders of the company, but just in case they are listening at some point, I don't want them to think I don't give them their kudos. There you go. It's not called Six Labs for nothing. It's not. And this isn't called Casually Baked for nothing either. So <laughs> we're going to have a nice casual chat and uh, you can uh, give your co-founders props whenever we need to along the way. You got it. All right. So, Joe, one of the very first things I noticed when we talked is you're a, a buff guy. You looked like an athlete. And you told me this story of struggling with back trauma the majority of your life. So I feel like that would be a great place to kind of dip into the conversation because I feel like that's probably shaped who you are as a human. Yeah, it, it um, definitely. I mean, it's uh, in fact, it's been uh, wow. Look, probably over 30 years now that I've had dealt with this chronic problem. I was a three-sport athlete in high school and ended up, believe it or not, of all places, uh, going to West Point Military Academy out of out of high school as a recruited athlete. And I uh, was during plebe summer there and I blew my back out and, uh, you know, spent a couple of weeks in the West Point hospital there. And they told me that uh, I needed surgery. I could stay at West Point or I can get an honorable discharge. And I selected the honorable discharge, ended up going home in the summer, got my first back surgery. And then a couple of weeks later, I was on a plane to prep school in Connecticut, uh, a place called Choate Rosemary Hall for a fifth year of high school because I had nowhere to go to college and then played a season of football there and then got recruited, played it in the Ivy League for two years and then had a second surgery, ended my football playing career. Uh, but I continued to play sports because, you know, you're 20 and you feel fine on some days. But the, the thing that turned me on toward cannabis was that in my 20s, during college in New York, I was, you know, in chronic pain and I was prescribed, you know, an abundance of Percocet and Vicodin. And it was the beginning, I think, of the opioid crisis, if you want to call it that. And we didn't know anything about them at that time. And they hadn't told us what was really behind it. So I was one of the lucky ones, I guess, because I never had a chance to build up a tolerance or an addiction because I was one of that small percentage of people that don't react well to it. So I would be in horrible pain in college, not be able to do anything. And I had, you know, a couple of choices, you know, it was these pills, which made me feel very sick and very itchy and very unstable. And I had terrible stomach problems from them, which made me not want to take them or alcohol, which made me feel worse the next day because I'm dehydrated. And the worst thing you can do for disc injuries is to be dehydrated. And then uh, the third one was that, you know, I started recreationally, you know, using cannabis, very, very heavily consumed at Columbia uh, University in New York. And I started to realize that sometimes when I was in horrible pain, it gave me an immense amount of relief. 
So I sort of self-medicated with it uh, secretly while my friends were doing it recreationally. And then when I got out, I uh, went well, to law school. May I and, pause you for a second? Sure. So when you were, because I have the same re- If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095 or visit collateralbase.com. Action with the opioids, they, they've never worked well for me either, and I'm very grateful for that. But the, you know, the alcohol thing wasn't working. When you did find that cannabis was helping, did you tell your parents about it? Did you talk about it with anyone? Or was this something that you just, okay, this is working, file it away, and I'm just going to do it silently? Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in a very, I I wouldn't say a conservative family because they were, my parents were Italian immigrants and they were the most progressive Italian immigrants you could ever imagine. But yet, you know, my father was of the the perspective back then, just like most parents, I think that, you know, but my dad called everything dope. It didn't matter whether it was heroin, whether it was, you know, methamphetamine, cocaine or cannabis, it was all dope. So, I didn't tell anybody about it, but my roommates and one of my very close friends who was also a football player at Columbia, he had back problems. And he and I sort of, you know, we didn't know for sure, but we were like, man, you know, this is the only thing that makes me feel better. And, you know, it, it was strange because we didn't really know that there was, you know, any kind of potentially pain relieving qualities to it. And I can tell you that though, it's weird because when I look back, was sometimes, sometimes there was a lot of pain relieving qualities. And I don't know if it had to do with the strain or, you know, maybe just what we were consuming. You know, sometimes you really felt like you were relaxed and that it did alleviate a lot of the stress and tightness and spasming that your back was having. And then other times it was more, you know, where you were a little bit I don't know how to explain it. it didn't Anxious, have as many, yes, and you, you know? feel the tightness in your gut and stuff. Yeah, it yeah. absolutely had to do with the strain that you were consuming. And yeah. also when you get to that threshold of your sweet spot and you take more than that, sometimes for me, it would just like amplify my pain where I could feel the pain pulsating in my sure. body. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you a really funny story that happened relatively early, I mean, relatively recent before I got into the actual, because I'd always been an investor in cannabis. But right before we started this company, I had an incredible flare up and like to the point where I was like, okay, you know, I, 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 they've been telling me I needed fusion surgery for years and I just don't want to do it. Um, So, you know, have very little disc space left in a couple of levels, but I'm super active. I train every day. I, I play golf. I do everything with my kids. And I was in a place where I couldn't, you know, where I literally couldn't walk. I had to, you know, have my own little bedpan next to the bed. I couldn't even do anything. And I had a friend, believe it or not, who who was in 
uh, the cannabis business in Michigan before they changed the laws to be what we're involved in. But prior to that with the caregivers and there was this thing, he said, you have to, this will, this will help you. And I, like, I'll take anything right now. And I couldn't take opioids. I couldn't even get myself up to go to the chiropractor. Couldn't do anything. It was like days and days of crawling to the bathroom. And he said, I'm going to get you this thing called Rick Simpson oil. And uh, he's like, this is what they're giving to cancer patients. He's like, this is real stuff. This is going to help you. And I'm like, I, it's cannabis-based. Give it to me. So we drove up. He drove back from Michigan, and he gave me this injectable, um, not in, into your arm. Yeah, so it's I'm, in a syringe. Yeah, I'm not going to so get too thick. graphic about That's... where it has to go. <laughs> and uh, he said, just take one quarter of this, you know, and then, you know, and then after about 24 hours, take another. And I did this for three days. You know, when you're in that kind of pain, you'll do anything you can to just give you a few minutes of, of, of solace. And I will tell you, I mean, I'm not going to say that this is a cure, but I was in a relatively, you know, steady comatose state for three days with the Rick Simpson oil. And when it wore off, I didn't have any more left. And I could, I don't know what happened, but I got up out of bed and I was perfectly okay. And I think it was because of the fact that I truly had no choice but to relax you know, the spasming, because when, you, when your discs are out of whack, what happens, what really causes you the pain is that you, your muscles spasm to protect the spine. So it just, it just builds on it. After, when you're in horrible pain and your muscles are spasming, and you're just continually spasming and spasming because you want to move. And, you know, with this, I was literally, I can't tell you, I, I, when, when I, when I kind of came up after three days of the Rick Simpson, I was like, okay, should I move right now? Should I breathe? And then all of a sudden it started really slowly. And I was like, wait a minute, I got up and I'm not kidding you. That night I was kind of walking uphill on a treadmill and I couldn't believe it. So that made me realize, you know, for sure that there was something very, very significant to this, what I'll call commodity now. And that it is that there are major pain relieving qualities in it. And I think that you know, I used to challenge uh, I have a very close friend who's very high up in the NFL in the front office. And I used to tell him, I said, you know, you guys are hi hypocrites. You're finding these players for testing positive for cannabis, but yet you're you're ruining their lives, giving them opioids and Amen. getting them, you know, and I and, and I love him dearly. He's one of the most wonderful people in the world. He's my one of my best friends. And he couldn't do anything about it. And he didn't really ever want to make official comments to me. And I appreciated that. But I, I as, a, as a friend to friend, I would just literally bust his balls constantly and say, how could you guys do this? It's got to change. And he knew my problem. He knew what I was going through. And I said, You're, you've been best friends with me for 30 years. And you see, and I'm telling you, man, this is way better for these guys than, than you know, shoving opioids down their throat. And then five years after they're done with, you know, football, their lives are destroyed because they're all addicted to it. And we knew that at this time. I mean, mm -hmm. this was like, you know, five years ago, four years ago. And, you know, finally, it looks like there's some light at the end of the tunnel because the NFL actually made a, a big move by allowing players, they're not going to test them over the summer. And did Man. I see that the NFL is now getting involved in some CBD studies or something? They're like, Dipping their toe in. They're dipping their toe. You know, Major League Baseball, NBA, super progressive. They basically said it's it's legal. So, if it's legal in your state, I guess it's legal. But I don't think it, they're going to call people out who are playing for teams outside of uh, legal states. So yeah, they were super progressive, which is awesome. And Major League Baseball basically said we're not going to test for it anymore, which effectively legalizes it. And then you have the NFL that's sort of dipping their toe in right now by saying well, that. I 
Yeah. And they're just scared because of the brain trauma stuff. Yeah. Well, they don't want they don't want those tests done. They're afraid what's going to come out of it because there is 100 percent brain trauma on those athletes coming out of terrible. Yeah, I've got I've got lots and lots of former NFL friends. You know, I lived part time in Arizona for a very long period of time, and I became very close friends with several former NFL players out there because they're just guys that go out there to retire. And I just ended up in their circles and um, my kids went to school with a couple of them and we became really close friends and I learned about their lives and met with retired NFL Players Association members and went to a couple of their meetings. And this is the most pervasive thing. It's real. I mean, what these guys have gone through. So, uh, you know, I started to think myself, I mean, I didn't play professionally, but I played since I was about 10 years old and I had three, excuse me, major concussions uh, during high school. And, you know, sometimes I start to think to myself, you know, is there something wrong with me? You know, because you you have this fear that, you know, they say, can I take one serious concussion, maybe two? But, you know, when I was playing football, you know, it was like they didn't even know that. It was like we had a team doctor and I had a concussion, my first concussion. I'll never forget freshman year in high school. And I, I, I didn't know where I was after it happened on the field. I was walking around. I had no idea where I was. So they said, OK, you got a concussion. Send you to the doctor. And the doctor says, even my doctor was like, okay, I'm like, well, what's a concussion? Like, that's like a bruise on your brain and it goes away just like a bruise on your arm. You got to take a week off and you'll be fine. And, you know, wow. Yeah. You know, so it was like just complete lack of either diligence to know what the hell was going on or they weren't telling you the truth. So, and I don't know which one it was. Well, probably a little of both from my experience. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So Joe, you are a serial entrepreneur And the fact that you had that moment, those three days with that Rick Simpson oil, and it got, I'm sure, those entrepreneurial or gondrepreneurial wheels turning. Um, So then what led you and your five buddies to kick off Six Labs? Well, so... We, you know, worked out just strangely enough that the original six, we'll call them, uh, you know, because I'm a hockey fan as well. But we got pulled into a potential investment in Michigan because the laws were changing and they were going to open it up to, I guess we'll call it the more modern day cannabis legalization laws. So they were going to invite large cultivators because prior to that, it's just an open market of, of medical cannabis through caregivers. So we got pulled in to be investors. We went out there and we started looking around and I said, you know, hey, you know, my partners are like, you know, we should just do this ourselves. And I said, you know what? I see a huge opportunity here. We're all seasoned businessmen. And that's one of the beauties of being with guys, you know, being an entrepreneur in your forties is, is I think, you know, you can be an entrepreneur anytime, you know, lots of times it's lost on the young because the young, you know, have, you know, this youthful exuberance and they have a higher risk tolerance and they don't have as many responsibilities, but you can do it as an old person too. But I say 40 is a great time because you're seasoned businessmen. You actually know a lot of people with money and, you know, you you can take it on. The problem being is that if you're successful already and you're really going to do this, you have to at some point leave, you know, step away from your career and as we were going along, we were doing this and it was awesome because we were able to organize. I mean, we, if you say what you need to start a business, you know, we had, we just, and I'd love to tell everyone that we did this on purpose. It just came together, you know, especially a cannabis business. We had an attorney, myself, we had an accountant, 
We had a banker. We had a financier banker. We had an operations guy. We had a cannabis guy, someone who knows the lay of the land in cannabis. And, and we had a builder. So we're like, okay, we, we, we don't even need to go outside of our six to really pull this off. So we raised millions and millions of dollars and we all just started doing this. Now, as we're in it, you know, a year into it is when you say to yourself, okay, you're a restaurateur, you know, my friend is a restaurateur, my partner and my other partners, you know, been an executive at a large bank and my other partner owns a building company. And we're like, okay, you guys got to quit. <laughs> you got to quit your jobs, man. You got to leave. I had a, a more fortunate circumstance because I own my own law firm. I started it the day I graduated law school, which is a whole nother story. And I was able to move up some younger attorneys to sort of fill my space. And I have a partner who's been a partner of mine for many years. And so I, you know, he's not happy with me because I, I, I don't run the, the business. Um, and I, I have some cases that I still oversee and handle. Uh, very large cases, but, you know, I'm not there every day anymore. And I'm dedicated, you know, 95 to 97.5% of my time to this business. So that was the challenge, you know, for us, the biggest challenge. And then we obviously brought in a bunch of cannabis people to, you know, grow cannabis and to, you know, sell the cannabis and do all that stuff. But we've all become so entrenched in knowing about it and learning about it. And, you know, they selected me to be the thought leader and to do these podcasts and write articles. So I've learned an immense amount, more than I ever thought I would know. And it's been like, you know, just a little bit under three years now. And I feel like I've been doing this my whole life at this point. You know, it's really weird, but I had a, a friend of mine, his name is Paul Dillon. He was on Roll With Me that you're going to join me on at some point soon. Love to. And I call him a cannabis expert and he doesn't like that and because he's like, but I'm always learning something and I don't feel like any of us can ever be an expert with this plant. And I'm like, all right, yeah, it's a good point because we're constantly learning and we will continue to learn more and more and more about cannabis as this goes along. I mean, it's fascinating, the learning curve, and which was the reason I originally got into the educational side of cannabis anyway, because sure. without informed consumers, it's not going to improve the reputation of this plant. Well, you know, you raise a good point on, on two prongs. You know, one, I don't like the word expert in pretty much anything. The strange part is, is that, you know, especially the profession I just left, you know, I I focused on one area of law and I tried dozens and dozens of cases and had an immense amount of success. And I was always in the business of hiring someone to testify in my case that was an expert. But yet, not only are you not allowed under the rules of ethics, uh, attorney rule of ethics, to call yourself an expert in a particular area of law, but yet you spend all of your time hiring what you call experts. You know, it might be a physician, it might be a construction, it might, it might be an engineer. They're the expert. They're called the expert. And in cannabis, I don't think you could ever call yourself an expert for the same reasons that I couldn't call myself an expert in the area of law, because you really, it's a practice. You're learning things all the time and it's evolving. And, you know, we have this saying in our company that every month, it seems, in, in cannabis, at least in the cannabis business, is like a dog year. I mean, there, you know, if you literally open up, you know, and start looking and I was on this podcast with these wonderful women, uh, one uh, woman from, from who has, she's the CEO of the Kenigma, it's based out of Israel. And she had a bunch of, of medical experts, you know, uh, in cannabis, so to speak, uh, on, this, on the show. 
And, you know, you come to learn that, you know, there's been almost 12,000 tests done, independent studies done on cannabis. And yet there was only like 400 tests done on Ritalin before they started giving it to little kids. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Cannabis is one of the most tested products in the world ever. And we still don't know what it does. I mean, not when they say what it does, we know what it doesn't do. It doesn't kill you, right? There's no, not one single case of anyone over, overdosing and dying from, from cannabis. But we don't know how much it can do for you yet. And I think it's so interesting to see, and I don't know what's going to happen once the federal government you know, does step in, if they do step in, if the FDA starts putting a stamp on any of this. I, I don't know. I have a little bit of trepidation, but I'm also saying it would be a good thing, you know. So I'm not. It's weird because when I first got into this, I was like, okay, the federal government's going to legalize it. You guys have nothing to worry about. You know, invest your money. You're never going to lose it. And now you're starting to look at it, and you're like, okay, be careful what you wish for, kind of thing. So I'm, I'm sort of waffle on that one. That one question all the time is whether or not federal legalization is really good for us, or really just decriminalization is better. I so. agree. The other thing about, you know, what you said about us not knowing the the depths at which cannabis can help. It's like we've already got people in pharma creating synthetic versions of a plant where we're like, why are you doing that? Why not spend that time and energy exhausting the potential of the plant instead of trying to create something in a lab to replace it? Because that is how they operate. That's the problem. I completely agree with you. I've read a lot of articles about this, and I was shocked when I first learned about it, that they're literally trying to mimic the molecular compound in a fake and an unnatural fashion. And I just, I don't understand why they would do that unless it's, you know, if they were doing it purely to test it, uh, you know, I guess maybe that would be okay. But yeah, I think trying to reproduce this in a, in a synthetic fashion is just absurd. And if you read past the first page of any of those studies, you'll find that the entourage effect is part of the magic of it working. So to try to just isolate and create these chemical compounds, it's completely absurd. But that's part of my apprehension about the federal legalization is that the feds are in bed with big pharma. So why is that going to be helping us? I agree. I agree. So that's, I think that the naturalists, you know, most of the people, you know, and that's the thing you brought up about education. So I kind of look at it and say, one of the things that is a big challenge to us, and and I'm not going to lie, is the fact that we're spending all this time and money trying to do things right. And we're following protocols and we have an immense amount of regulation over us. And to create purely clean and precise cannabis indoors where you control all of the, of the elements is very difficult. It's just not like you turn on the lights and you say, okay, this is perfect now. It has an immense amount of work. I mean, we have 50 employees at our facility who are day and night caring for these plants, nutrient levels and, and CO2 levels and, and airflow and, and the type of soil that we use, every single little thing. And you still aren't able to perfect it to the point where there's nothing inside of it that you wouldn't want. Now, we pass our tests because you can have certain levels. We're trying to get it to the point where there's nothing in it, traceable outside of, of, of actually pure cannabis. Then it begs the question as to what go, what's going into the stuff that's sold on the black market. Because if we 
have, you know, we're not allowed to use pesticides. We're not allowed to use certain ingredients that, that could potentially harm anybody. We have to test our water. We have immense elaborate filtration systems. And what is going to stop people from using black market cannabis? And it's still rampant, you know, at a 70% of the United States clip, even in legalized states. So education, I think, is going to be the thing that takes the new consumer, you know, the 21-year-old kid who finally can go to a dispensary and maybe has, you know, consumed cannabis in college illegally, you know, from black market vendors and says, okay, now I, I can, I'm going to go spend the extra money, you know, pay the tax because that's really the big issue everybody talks about is, you know, they, they want to spend the money on the tax. But I say, what's going to bridge the gap between the people who consume it regularly from black market to say, you know what? I really know the reason why the states are testing this so much and requiring all this rigorous, uh, elaborate, I should say, measures to take to create clean cannabis. What's in the black market stuff that's so bad? And if they started looking, I think they'd realize that, you know, it'd, it'd be worth it to go and buy it and, and pay the money and buy it legally and, and spend a little bit extra on the taxes. So well, that's that's yeah, I'm sorry. The correlation I try to make with people when I'm having a lifestyle session or something is the ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure conversation where it's like, yeah. yes, you're spending a little bit more money. Yeah. You know, you're having to pay for that packaging. You're having to pay for that tax. But the fact that you know exactly what's going into your body, you know who grew it, you know where it came from. Those things are worth that premium price because it's your health at the end of the day that we're talking sure. about. Yeah, I mean, so that's why, you know, it started off medical for medical patients because of that, right? Because we're we're going to we're going to create a product for a medical patient. We're going to make sure it's safe. We're going to make sure it's clean. We're going to make sure that there's no toxins and no, you know, pesticides used and any, any you know, the, the water's clean that grows it. And now if we're talking about recreational, you know, some states have much lower thresholds. And I'm, I'm like, well, why? I mean, why would you lower your threshold? You should just have one uniform threshold and it should be that. And, you know, you talked about the entourage effect. That's where this is really going. And I think what may change what may trigger the difference is you know we're striving for um we have you know several brands that we've recently rolled out and we have one that we're waiting on because we're trying to we know we're not there yet where you can say we're going to give you this exact sensation every time well okay. and you know what something needs to be said about that anyway we are all genetically precious snowflakes Correct. So, you you know, even putting a label on a bottle that says this is going to make you feel calm, it might not really make everybody feel calm. 100%. So that whole thing, I'm just like, everybody needs to take a breath on that branding yeah. shit and just be like, experiment. You tell yeah. us how it makes you feel. Correct. I agree with you. I actually said I was on a podcast two days ago and I, this came up and I said, I took opioids and they made me feel like shit and other people feel it and they feel like they just injected heroin, you know, and they can't get enough of it. Yeah. And some people get an extreme amount of relief from it and some people get bad reactions from things. And you, we are precious snowflake. I agree with you. So we are trying to basically switch it around a bit, you know, not necessarily sensation based, but we have a product line coming down called Ritual. And it's really cool. The packaging is going to be amazing. And we've put an incredible amount of R&D into it. 
we're not rolling it out until it's actually something we can say. You know, we, we're, we're doing our own internal testing and and we basically want to make occasion-based. So in a sense where we have a combination of THC and CBD and CBG and feeling like we have some terpenes, compounds that we can control and levels and say, okay, if you're going to go, you know, take a walk on the beach, this is going to enhance your experience. If you're going to go watch a movie, this is going to enhance your experience. If you're going to go have sex, this might enhance your experience. And, you know, if you want to be creative and, you know, write a book or paint or do something along those lines, this will enhance your experience. In fact, we even have one that we think, you know, might make you actually work out a little harder and give you some energy. So we're trying to do that rather than say, okay, you're going to feel this way. You know, um, this is going to give you the, we're just trying to say, Hey, these are ones that you, we think will enhance this particular experience, this mm -hmm. particular ritual. So yeah. if you, I do preach that like cannabis will enhance your everyday experience if you allow it to. So sure. that's cool. But let's dive into the Michigan cannabis laws. Tell me, sure. tell me what's going on there. So, um, where do you want me to start on that, Joe? Well, yeah, know. just, I mean, I, if I were to go to Michigan and visit, what do I need to know? What's oh, the law? Okay, so, yeah, so it's, it's fully legal. I probably should know this, but this isn't in my wheelhouse. I think you can have up to two ounces on you at any time of legal cannabis. Um, obviously, they haven't prosecuted a single illegal cannabis sale in probably 10 years. <laughs> uh, not anyone in the state. So that's, you know, a good thing in some ways. You know, so I say, you know, it's great that it's decriminalized in the sense that, okay, some kid who didn't buy it, you know, or some kid who sells a dime bag or quarters, somebody doesn't go to jail. That's fine. But the guys who are moving, you know, 100 pounds, that's a problem still. And that's the reason why it's so complex, because we fought for decriminalization. We fought for, you know, expungements and we got them. And I'm happy for that. But on the same token, 1800 percent increase at the border of Michigan and Canada over the last 18 months of cannabis coming in from Canada, commercial grade in massive trucks, thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds. And the only penalty the United States has levied on them, on these traffickers, is a 5,000, now this is true, you can look it up, $5,000 per ton. And the people who were, who were trafficking in from Canada were just sent back and their passports were revoked. No penalty. No, no. It sounds commercial. like they just paid the government a commission on the sale. Yeah, they did. <laughs> a very so, small commission. Yeah. So the problem is the, the landscape, in, it, there's a ton of competition. Um, you know, we support, lead, you know, we support anyone who is doing, selling, growing legal cannabis products. And anyone who's not is, you know, we would like to see some action by the state on that or by the federal government for that matter. And there just isn't any, um, you know, there's been thousands of pounds that have cost state lines from California. I mean, um, and you know, it, 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 it really jeopardizes the legal industry because, you know, the amount of money that goes into us creating a pound of cannabis 
if the price goes down to a thousand dollars a pound, we're all going to go out of business, all of us, because we're not growing it outside. We, our electricity costs a lot of money, even though we use low energy lighting and we're very conscious environmentally. It, it still costs us a lot of money to do it, and so. You know, we, we're not trying to gouge the system, but it'd be nice to make a little profit, you know, from all the effort that we're putting it in. And, and when the market gets flooded from illegal cannabis sales, it just crushes us. And you want to see the industry thrive. But in the legal space, Michigan's got one of the greatest histories of cannabis of any state in the United States. And, and it's second behind California, if it's second to anyone. And, you know, so there's an incredible amount of great strains that flow through the state. You know, the caregivers have been growing for years and years and years. There's tons of of interest. And, you know, um, I think that the state has an incredible opportunity and they didn't overtax it either. You know, we've got people from Illinois, even though we're not contiguous because you have to go through Indiana for about 30 miles to get to Michigan from Illinois, unless you take Lake Michigan, then you go from Illinois to Michigan. But they're going to Michigan border counties that have dispensaries and people from Illinois drive there because Illinois taxes are like 40% and Michigan's are like 16. So you can literally buy the same quality, you know, commercial grade cannabis product if you in Michigan for substantially less. So people literally drive through because Illinois, although we're waiting to hear if we want our license here, uh, it's been pending for a very long time. Uh, we applied for a grow license as well as a processing and infusion license. But the, the, the tax here is high and still Illinois with literally very few dispensaries because they've been tied up in lawsuits for the last round of dispensaries. So only the original medical dispensaries in Illinois are selling recreational cannabis. They can't grow it fast enough. They outdid in 2020 tax revenue from alcohol. Okay, so then when you're thinking about that and about the the cost of doing business in Illinois, as a group, y'all decided, okay, it's worth our while because they need product. There is a demand and there's not enough supply. It's already hard enough to try to figure it out and make a profit in one state, you know, and then add another one that the margins are going to be even slimmer. So here's the thing, Joe, is that I probably should have added this before. The difference between Michigan and Illinois is something that you just said, but actually it's the opposite. Illinois uh, is the is the crown jewel because they have already stated there's going to be X number of dispensaries, X number of of grow facilities, and X number of processors, and that's it. Illinois was the first state to do it to to legalize cannabis by legislation rather than referendum, so they wrote the law out and said this is what we're doing. So the the the, the consensus is that you know so here let me put it to you this way. Two dispensaries sold in Illinois about a month ago, and I'm very close to one of the participants, for $97 million, two dispensaries. Because the population versus the amount of dispensaries that they're going to allow is already etched in stone. Yeah, certainly. So, that totally makes sense. Did they create a vertical system or a horizontal system? So there's a, you're, you're very, very intuitive. So... Michigan, you probably will end up having to be vertically integrated. Illinois, you will not have to be to survive because they're, put it this way, if you win a grow license right now, and this is, these are not full scale grow licenses, there you're going to be limited to 15,000 square feet of canopy. 
those licenses are worth 10 million without without putting a brick on the ground um you could literally get that license and if the state allows you to sell it you could sell it for 10 million dollars and in michigan that's not the case because michigan has more of an open door policy it's more of a a free open economy so to speak so there's a lot of people entering the market that when we first applied it was a rigorous rigorous application process you had to have three years of all of your past business experiences basically every deal you've ever done in your life boxes and boxes of banker boxes of information now they're only looking for one year and they obviously have a very strict background check much more rigorous than illinois to be honest with you is odd but uh, now it's much, the floodgates are a little bit more open in Michigan. So the competition is high. The good thing about that is that if there's a lot of people coming in who don't know what they're doing and they'll be out of business rather quickly and we'll be able to scoop some of those, those entities up, you know, when they, when they fail, but Illinois, you come in here, the application was 250 pages and you had to basically lay out your entire plan all how what your experience was in growing every single aspect of your business from security to the type of system you're going to use to the type of lights you're going to use you had to have property they're basically saying we want to know that you know what you're doing michigan saying we just want to know that you haven't done anything illegal in your life and we want to know that you're really kind of a businessman that was on the up and up and you have enough money to pull this off. Okay. And when uh, they say, have you done that? You haven't done anything illegal in your life. It better not be talking about a cannabis conviction. So that's a little bit of a strange thing. So small cannabis convictions. No, but if you were involved in what existed in Michigan prior to the legalization was something insane. They basically had a system where there was really, you know, they, they had caregivers who were allowed to grow 72 plants and only have five patients, not including themselves. And that's how the system started. What ended up happening, and I don't know how this came about, but it just became a place for people to just say, we're going to go grow cannabis in Michigan. That evolved over the years. And I'm sure that the caregivers were doing their job and they had their patients. But somewhere along the lines, some people started to open up dispensaries. And literally just i don't know how it happened but you know when i told you the rick simpson story uh, that's somebody went to a dispensary in michigan and bought you know rick simpson oil and dispensaries weren't allowed the, the only thing that could have happened the only thing that was allowed was caregivers could sell directly to five patients all of a sudden you've got these dispensaries that are in the detroit area and they're open up and their shelves are full of cannabis and people are just going in there and buying it and they would get shut down, they'd get raided, and they would literally confiscate all the cannabis on the shelves, and then they would just open again a week later. So they couldn't stop it. And the state finally said, okay, this is, they're, they're, it's so rampant, which kind of, you know, kind of is a feather in the cap of Michigan, I guess, to show you how, how deep-rooted their cannabis, their love of cannabis is. But they, the, the state finally said, okay, we have to revamp this system. It's not working. So... The problem became, okay, how do you allow the caregivers to continue doing their job and also allow big cultivation? in? So there became a conflict between the caregivers and the big cultivators. We give up. Just keep talking. Keep talking. Yeah. Just keep going. Yeah, there, came, there became a conflict. A conflict. Hold on one second. There became, <laughs> there became a conflict with the caregivers. Uh, hold on a second. Stop emailing or texting me. I'm getting in trouble on the live stream right now. <laughs> uh, my 10-year-old son, I want to literally, that's who it is.
Oh, the joys of parenting during a work day. Yeah. <laughs> um, back if we're back on. So, yeah, so there, you know, there's a coalition that we're not a part of to fight the caregivers and the caregivers were allowed to sell, you know, there's a little background here. The, the large cultivators had a problem in the beginning with scaling their production and they weren't passing testing and the caregivers were the only ones who were providing, you know, you know, good quality flour. Yeah. Quality flour to the dispensaries. And so the caregivers as of uh, October of last year were not allowed to sell any more to the dispensaries. And that was largely because of these coalitions that have been built to stop the caregivers from doing their job. And there's nothing wrong with the caregivers. Like I said, they pass through a ton of great product and they pass through a ton of high quality strains. And, you know, we, we, we deal with a lot of caregivers. I mean, we, we actually get some of our strains from them and we look at it like, Hey, we're not Chicago. We're not Michiganders. A couple of my partners have moved there, but you know, we're not part of this old feud. We just want to come in. We want to sell cannabis. We want to do things right. And we want to create the cleanest, most precise cannabis that's in the marketplace. We want to be the largest craft grower, you know, in the country. And so whatever you guys all have going on here, figure it out. But there's almost like a Hatfield and McCoy feud that's already built into the system because the state's trying to figure out what to do with the new system where all these large cultivators have come in and also with the 30,000 caregivers that already had licenses and make their living doing it. So it's a very difficult juggling act that the state's trying to face right now. And I, I don't envy it. Well, and did the state, are they the ones that painted themselves in the corner on this with the way they wrote the legislation? Because, you know, the caregivers, they're the the roots of your Michigan cannabis culture. They're the ones that have been taking care of people. So, you know, you don't want to see them lose out or lose their space. But it seems like that's the people who wrote the law's fault. Well, yeah, I mean, so you're right. I mean, we're, we're you know, we're personal friends with a lot of caregivers and I understand how they make their living from this and they have made their living from it for a long time. So it's really hard. I'm not going to say the state painted themselves in the corner, but they, they, they did it unwittingly because the, the law that they put in place back in 2008 to open up the doors to the caregivers was, was well-intended and they did what they thought was right. And then as this evolved and recreational cannabis became at the forefront, I don't know that Michigan thought this was going to happen so quickly or something along the lines. I have no idea. But, but now that it became recreational and all these states are flipping, you say, okay, you can't open up the doors to the caregivers selling to recreational because they can only grow 72 plants and it'll be a hodgepodge mess. So they then say, okay, we're going to modernize the law. We're going to do, you know, what California did we're gonna do what Oregon did, we're gonna do what Colorado did. We're going to say, okay, large cultivators, here you go. You can come into our state and pay huge licensing fees and spend millions of dollars, get us up to speed with what's going on. But you still have to figure out what to do with all these other growers who have been making their livelihood for all these years uh, doing it this way. So it, it's the most unique problem in the United States in the sense of what to do uh, and how to make sure that everyone prospers. And there's legitimate arguments on both sides of the fence. And I try not to get myself involved in them because we just need to do what we're doing and keep doing what we're doing right. And we can't get ourselves involved in in the feud that's going on because it, there's, like I said, there's too many competing interests. And we, you know, obviously 
We are Michigan businessmen, and we are unfortunately in, in, in the midst of this, but I don't know what the right answer is. I don't know how they're going to make sure that, that the industry continues to prosper and that the caregivers still can make money and still still keep their livelihood. I don't know what they're going to do. But the, you know, somewhere down the line, the rubber is going to meet the road. There's a lot of infighting in the legislation about it. So, you know, we just, or like I said, we, we just stay out of it. We didn't join the coalition against the caregivers and we we do we do business with everybody <laughs> that's how we are we just we're just we're like we're like switzerland we yeah. do business with everybody well and i think this is good information for people when they think about entering into the cannabis industry or someone who is just trying to evaluate which state is doing it best and i think federally speaking we should all be looking under the hood at all of the state laws and seeing what works, what doesn't, where would we want to be a part of it or not. And yeah, being in the cannabis industry is definitely not for the faint of heart. It's not. So let's shift gears a little bit. So you said your team gave you this uh, title of being a master of commanding chaos. I know that that's what a lot of this stuff feels like right now. So I feel like I wear a ton of hats and have to try to center myself and, and find and be the calm in the center of all the chaos. Um, so what advice do you have for us to help us do that and get there? So you're kind of talking just generally about entrepreneurship. And I, I would say this, that, you know, the, the cannabis industry is, the, in my opinion, the pinnacle of, of entrepreneurial challenges. I've started several businesses in my life and I've done them multiple different ways or I was the one wearing every hat in the beginning or I was the one sort of doing the, you know, had people doing the work and I was mostly the financial backing of it and was just sort of acting as the sensei um, and everything in between. And the thing that I want to say is there's no there's no playbook. I'll tell you a real quick story because I know we're running out of time. But so when I was in law school, I read this book called How to Start Your Own Law Firm and Not Miss a Meal. And uh, and I was like, OK, because I was this is what I was going to do. I said, I, I don't want to work for a law firm. It's not that hard to do this. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to do it myself. So I literally, while I was studying for the bar, read this book. And I'm like, well, I can pull this off. I can pull this off. And the last chapter of the book goes, okay, so now you've been a lawyer for five to seven years and you're going to go out here and good luck and go do this. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I'm not a lawyer for five to seven years. You know, I don't have any experience being a lawyer. I'm like, wait a minute. I didn't realize, okay, this was giving you the, the, the business model to pull this off, but not, but the, then I looked and I'm like, okay, wait a minute. What, how am I going to do this? I don't know anything about being a lawyer because they don't teach you how to be a lawyer in law school. They teach you how to be a law student. So I said, I'm going to do this anyway, but I'm going to apply this, this, this method to get you to this place where you, you can get your own business. The other part I'll figure out. And so I did figure it out. I brought in other attorneys, you know, and shared fees with them and had guys that I you know, co-ops. And I went to an office where there was a bunch of sole practitioners in the beginning. I said, okay, I'll give you guys a cut of this fee. I'll give you a cut of this fee, give you some interest in, in, in what I'm doing, but teach me and teach me. And, and I pulled it off and pivoted. And for the first few years of my law practice, I was a divorce attorney on Monday. I was a real estate attorney on Thursday. I was a criminal attorney, a plaintiff's attorney, and, and, and everything in between. Knowing that I was going to move myself into catastrophic injury the whole time because that's what I had a, a passion for. So the, the best advice I can give is you if you think that you're going to read uh, or you're going to have a plan as any kind of an entrepreneur and you're going to say, this is the way we're doing it. This is... This is my my model. I'm not moving off of it. And you think that if you follow all of this, it's going to work. 
you're out of your mind. The two most important things I say is, and especially in the cannabis space, is that you have to be able to pivot immensely. You have to be able to completely pivot and sometimes pivot on a moment's notice in order to survive. And you have to have this thing called resilience. And I, I read an article recently in Psychology Today about resilience and whether or not people are built with resilience. Uh, just innately, like in other words, is that a quality that you are born with or that you you have? But it's not. It, there, there may be more people suited to be more resilient just naturally. However, it doesn't mean that you're going to be more resilient to jump into business and fail or, or, or have something bad happen or have some challenge and, and, and overcome it. It, it. So resilience is by the people you surround yourself with. And, and it's a lot of it has to do with the, the, the social surroundings of your environment, the people who are supporting you, your partners, and your ability to rely on others to pick you up and for you to pick them up. It, it, it is a, an exercise in torture if you're not willing to, if you don't have the proper support around you to be able to pick yourself up and move when things don't go your way. And, you know, you obviously have to be um, someone who is not risk averse. I mean, that that's innately. If you're, if you're someone who would be afraid to go step up to the plate and strike out, you know, and that was you when you were a little leaguer. Hopefully you're not that person anymore because that you cannot do this if you're not afraid to strike out. And I, I struck out a lot of times, you know, but I always keep swinging. So that's, that's the thing. Yeah. And I really feel like me dropping myself off in the middle of Italy with, you know, no friends and not speaking the language. It was so challenging to just live to just get something from the grocery store or buy a bus ticket that when I moved back to the States, I'm like, I can do anything. Yeah. No, you know, you told me that story about you before and I'm so impressed. I don't know anyone who's actually just done that, you know, unless they kids, you know, someone was going to go study abroad or something like that. Uh, you know, for you to go just do that and you didn't speak Italian either. And, you know, and you didn't, it's not like you went and hung out and I think you said you were in Bologna, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. In a city that was, you know, authentically Italian. They're not speaking English there. (laughs) I was going to say, if you were like in Rome, you you go to Rome, I was even there like in the nineties. It's like people spoke English. There was enough people to get by, but in Bologna, man, you're you're talking about really not many people taking English out there. So that's very impressive. That's the kind of thing. So it's not just the, you know, the surroundings you have, but you have to acquire resilience and you acquired resilience by doing that, you know, and you feel like if you, you know, like my partners and I were into something and I said, listen, guys, if we can overcome this, we can overcome anything. And, you know, we were in this space in the you know beginning stages of the company and we're like, okay, holy shit, I can't believe this happened. Oh my God, I can't believe this happened. And, um, you know, and, and I'll share it, you know, we, we had an issue with our climate control system that we realized we, we, it wasn't working and we had to literally pull the whole thing out and we were just getting up and running. And I said, okay, guys, if we can pull this off and come out of this at this moment, this is when every other company will go under, we can do anything. And we pulled ourselves through it. And here we are today and we're so much stronger for it. But at the time I was like, oh my God, the worst possible thing could happen. I mean, one of the most expensive aspects of our business was failing in the very beginning stages of our growth cycles. And we tried to fix it. We tried to work with the company. It didn't work. 
we finally made the decision, okay, we're pulling this thing out and we're literally going to do this and we're not going back to our investors for more money. Uh, we're going to do this internally and we're going to figure it out. And we did. And everybody in the company is stronger for it. You know, so those are the kind of things that you, you know, but what I've been able to do this, if I didn't have my partners who I, you know, I look them and call them. I said, guys, tell me it's going to be okay today. Tell me, tell, tell, can you come here and give me a hug? And, you know, and sometimes you're doing that for them. And, you know, that's, that's resilient. It's not just you being the resilient person. It's you surrounding yourself with other resilient people when things are going bad and you can want to crawl into a hole. You know, someone comes and picks you up and says, listen, we're going to be okay. And that's the beautiful thing about being on a team. You know, you being a multi-sport athlete, being from a small town, I played every sport. Um, but yeah. basketball was what me and my sisters were into and, you know, played college ball. And, you know, having that camaraderie of a team can completely change the trajectory of your day if, you know, you're the one that is in need of being picked up. And that's one of the things that's been challenging for me as an entrepreneur is doing it alone. And, you know, shit, the last year and a half, not only doing it alone, but literally being alone while I'm doing it alone. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, that's the thing, too, is you, have, you know, it's a very lonely road. You know, it really is. Um, I was a competitive wrestler for many, many years. And, you know, uh, my kids are athletes and I tell them, I say, you know, if you look at your week and you haven't been alone a lot, then you're not doing enough because it's lonely. And it's, it, if you, you literally look, and I, even now in this business, I say, you know, if I'm not alone working at night and, and toiling in my mind and doing something alone where I'm like, Jesus Christ, I want to stop this or not. I want to just go watch TV. I want to hang out and I want to call my friends up or I want to go play golf. Then you're not doing what you're supposed to do. You have to spend time you, if in anything. You, you have to be alone. And, and some people are petrified of being alone. Some people are petrified of working alone. And, you, you know, for anybody who's going to try to do any kind of anything great, anything great, whether it's sports, whether it's business, whether it's being a writer, whatever it is, you have to spend a ton of time by yourself. And, and that's when you find out the true nature of your being and, and whether or not you can you have enough fortitude to pick yourself up and to keep striving when everyone around you is telling you that it should hit in the fan and it's not going right. So, you know, the, the, the commander of chaos thing is, it has been a badge that I sort of, was, you know, kind of proud of in the beginning. And now sometimes saying to myself, I don't know if I wear it well enough because it's, there's so much going on all the time that, you know, my, my partners are just as much commanders of chaos as I am. So I have to admit that. But yeah, that was the moniker that was given to me because I had the most chaos coming into this. But I think, you know, we were all under chaos now. So yeah, right. It's like, okay, there's enough that we can share it. <laughs> we, we, ha we have to share it. Yeah. We have to share it. Well, so. Joe, I really appreciate your time. And as we're messing with all the sounds and issues on your computer. I end up, there was a delivery outside my door and they ring my doorbell like three times. I'm like, can you please stop doing that? I'm so sorry. I tried to turn off the sound, but I have, I have kids and, and partners who continue to send me emails, even though they know that I'm on this podcast, but they probably think that I'm tech savvy enough to turn it off. And I clearly am not. Well, I just think it, it's kind of perfect. We commanded chaos during this podcast. So, yeah, you know, we did. We did. <laughs> we did.
Tell me how people can get in touch and find um, Six Labs, find you on social if they want to check out the yeah, products that sure. y'all have. So at Six Labs Cannabis or www.sixlabs.com. I'm on Twitter, Joseph B. Ori one I also have my own website, which, you know, is a creation of our branding and marketing entity. And that is that is www.josephori. And then I'm LinkedIn under Joe Ori. I can be found just a lot of different places. But we're in, you know, 30 or 40 dispensaries right now. We're rolling out. I said we have four brands uh, that are just awesome. One of our brands called Candela which is a line of solventless extraction. We just actually won the Michigan Cannabis Cup. So we're super proud of that. And we have MI6 as well as uh, strollers, which is kind of going along the lines of what I told you about, you know, sort of occasion-based. Mm-hmm. We have these very, you know, small packs of pre-rolls that are perfect for a walk. Whereas, yeah, you know, a you rosette, a yeah, little yeah, shorty. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Those are what so, I roll. Yeah. Yeah, those are super popular right now. And then, you know, we're we're obviously working on rolling out our our luxury brand ritual. And we we don't we, what we do in our company is like no other company. People will probably think we're crazy because we don't just seize the moment and, t- and put tons of cannabis out and say, "Okay, here you go." You know, we are against the Walmart weed concept. So that's why, you know, I appreciate the caregivers cuz we're trying to create craft cannabis in a very larger scale. The nail you know, like, oh, the price of weed so high right now. Let's go and let's get this production out there and let's just make as much money as we possibly can. That's what a lot of companies do. Um, in fact, most of them do. But we're not doing it like that. We're we're basically saying we're going to build our reputation as being a craft cannabis company, so that when the price does go down, people are still going to pay a premium for ours because they know that we've taken the time and care to make it as precise, as concise, and as clean as it possibly can be. We think that in the long run, our reputation will outlast all of our competitors. Because yeah. of and I appreciate that concept because that's kind of how I have been playing it. It's like, you know, if we're tortoise in the hair, I'm definitely the tortoise. I'm playing the long game. I know my message. I know who I'm talking to. I know why I'm doing it. And I don't play a lot of the social games. I don't have time. I'm wearing too many fucking hats. So I'm just like, you know what? People that resonate with me, they're going to stick with me. And I'll still be here because I can keep going longer than anybody else. Well, you can. (laughs) It sounds like you're a Texas girl by way of Northern California now, by way of Italy. I read your link. In and I, I looked you up. You're, you're a very impressive young woman. So I'm, uh, I'm going to be following you as much as hopefully you, your listeners will be following me. Well, I appreciate you, Joe. And I hope you and all those kiddos who are finally out yeah. for the summer blasting yeah. your phone. I hope yeah, y'all well, have a good weekend. Uh, you too. You too. Nice speaking with you. And, uh, you know, like I said, I'll keep following you and let's stay in touch. Thank you. Awesome. For having me. And thank you all for hanging out with us and all of our bells and whistles on today's <laughs> podcast. Thank <laughs> <you>. <laughs> if your smoke circle extends to Michigan and Illinois, I hope you'll share this podcast with them. And if you're looking for a one of a kind cannabis infused getaway, I invite you to join me in the beautiful wine and weed country of Sonoma County, California. As a cannabis lifestyle guide, I've cultivated a -a one-of-a-kind farm stay experience where you can enjoy the casually baked lifestyle and the magic of sun-grown cannabis farms and vineyards. If you're into wine, weed, or both, 
Get ready to have a high time customized just for you. Learn more at casuallybaked.com backslash travel. That's casuallybaked.com backslash travel. And head on over to the podcast 193 show notes at casuallybaked.com to learn more about Joe, Six Labs, and everything discussed on today's podcast. Creating change is a team sport. So help me spread the message far and wide, my friend, by rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. That small action helps other canna-curious folks find this highly responsible cannabis content. Thank you so much for doing your part to Puff Puff Pass It On. Casually Baked, the podcast was created, recorded, and produced by yours truly. Editing and sound design are in the capable hands of Arnav Gupta. The podcast theme music is by my highly talented friend, Seth Walker. If you aren't familiar with Seth's music, you can find High Time on his album, Gotta Get Back, wherever you're buying your music these days. I know he didn't create High Time for me, but it sure as shit sounds like he did, right? I hope you'll tune in next time. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name is Kira Reed, and I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. As the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, politicians, advocates, and community leaders that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry, and what they're doing to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.